Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, The True Christian, with a message titled, Husbands, Wives, and Children. So turning your Bibles to Colossians 3, 18 to 21, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I was in a sociology class back in my university days, a class that had a professor who was a Marxist-Leninist. And to put it mildly, the class was not Sociology 101. Indeed, our professor ignored the subject matter of the class entirely and simply made it Communism 101. And I learned a great deal about Marxism in those days. And interestingly enough, the class really did prepare me as a Christian how to respond to something that is an enemy of the Christian faith. I learned a great deal about why Marx thought that religion was the opiate of the people. And I also learned that Marxism is interested in breaking down the nuclear family and replacing it with state oversight of every human being. It was the state, not the family, that was to nurture the child. You know, in China today, that policy has prevailed. Reducing every family to one child in the first generation means that no child has a brother or a sister. And in the second generation, it means that no child has cousins. The extended family is over. No one relates to family. They relate to state. And the reason I mention that is that at one point in my sociology slash introduction to Marxism class, my professor brought in a Bible and read from Colossians 3.15, wives submit to your husbands, he read, with a note of triumph in his voice. Christianity, the opiate of the people, he said, is responsible for the suppression of women within the nuclear family. If women are to be truly liberated from such oppression, they need to turn to Marxism, which ends both religion and family. Well, my experience in that class was a great many years ago now, but the words from that class are merely representative from the words heard all over the world. Christianity is oppressive. The family is oppressive. We need to discover new ways of living. And we've already noted in our study of Colossians that the Apostle Paul warned against sexual immorality, that is, all sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage. He called for Christians to take off the clothing of impurity and and passion and improper desire. Instead, he called for the new clothing of compassion and kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Loving rather than lusting, caring for others rather than using others to care for our own needs. And so as we follow the argument of Colossians through, it should not surprise us then at some time in the writing of this letter that Paul should address the nuclear family, husbands, wives, and children. There's a Christian way of living, and at the heart of it is the family. And before we read and begin to discuss this passage, I think it necessary to make the case for marriage and family. And I say that because in Western culture, the age of marriage is being delayed later and later, so much so that a great many now live together and have children long before they marry. I want to relay my experience I had back when I was serving as a pastor. We used to have a prayer altar during the service, and I regularly was a part of that, praying with people over a great many different matters. I have a clear memory of praying with a young man, and I would have put him in his late 20s. He asked for prayer. He looked very sincere. He said that I'm single, he said, and I'm struggling with sexual desires, but I want to remain pure. He said, you know, it's a struggle every day. And I simply said, let's pray. My prayer went something like this. Dear Lord, this young man needs to marry a godly woman 
with whom he can share life and love. I pray that he would find her. He looked up at me as if he'd just been bitten by a rattlesnake. You know, he said, I'm not ready for marriage. I said, well, God made you in your body and your body's telling you, yeah, you're ready. I pointed out that in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 9, it says, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. I asked him, what do you think I should pray? A healthy body such as yours, created for lifelong love and care, would suddenly become devoid of sexual desire? No, no, I said. You need to understand how God designed you to live, but the culture that you live in says you're not ready. I make the point that we have not in Christian circles said enough about the glory of marriage and what it means for a husband and a wife to join arms with one another and live out a mission together. I make the point because in our society today, marriage is belittled and made little of, and so many are hoping to have no children at all. I say all of that because the sexual immorality so rampant in our day has come in as the collapse of marriage and the desire for family has also come in. And with that, we've collapsed our horizon. Secular people, you see, only deal with today. They don't remember the past, God's creation, the way in which he's dealt with us in the past. They tend to downplay the importance of family and children and creating a godly future. Instead, they celebrate today. And when today is gone, in their minds, they simply cease to exist. And because everyone needs care, they tend to entrust their souls into the care of the state rather than into the care of family members who love one another. And so when we come to Colossians 3, where Paul's indicating what kind of clothing the Christian should wear, it's natural that he should speak about marriage and family. Let's read our text, only four short verses, Colossians 3, 18 to 21. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So we see four very simple commands. The first to wives, the second to husbands, the thirds to children, and the fourth to fathers. Martin Luther called these die Haustafeln, or instructions to the home. You know, the term Haustafeln has become so widely used in theological circles that sometimes the word is simply there without explanation. They're household rules, how to celebrate the lordship of Jesus in the home. Four simple instructions, and yet, if we plumb them, they're quite profound. So let's look at the first. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And before we get into the details, let's explain that in the Western world, this seems rather offensive to a great many. It speaks at least to many of repression, not a positive way to live. And to make it even worse, a great many liberal Christians now argue that this command was never meant to be a universal command, they say. Instead, it must relate to some local situation in Colossae. It was never meant for all Christians. Well, the way to test that theory, of course, is first, whether there's anything in Colossians that indicates this is a temporary command. And here the answer is no, there's nothing in Colossians that shows us that. Second, let's ask whether this command comes up in other places. And here we answer, yes, this command does come up in other places. For instance, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Or again, Ephesians 5, 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. 
And while others have argued, well, you know, that's only found in Paul's letters, and he had a problem with women. Ah, but Peter said the same, 1 Peter 3, verse 1, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. So this isn't a unique command. It's the lifestyle of all Christians. It's a command that comes to us from the Lord. So now we're ready to come to terms with what the command actually means. What does Paul mean when he writes, wives, submit to your husbands? Well, the term submit means to be subject to someone or to submit to the directives of someone else. It's a verb that occurs 38 times in the New Testament. So here's a bit of a grammar lesson. Sometimes the verb to submit appears in the active voice. When it appears that way, it means that someone has the power to subject someone else. So, for instance, when we find this in the active voice, it's used of God. He has the power to subject all creation to himself, that creation itself was to submit to God. But when this command occurs in the middle voice, as it does here, it means that there is a voluntary submission, a submission which is offered to the other. In this case, it's offered up by the wife. She offers it to her husband. Listen, this is not demanded by the husband. He has no means of demanding this. Rather, she voluntarily submits to her husband. Wives, says Paul, offer up your submission to him. Now, as we're going to see, children, on the other hand, well, they're called upon to obey their parents, but wives are not called upon to obey their husbands. Rather, they are called upon to submit to them. That is, the wife has a conviction in her heart. It's born from her faith that her husband was given leadership in their home. The wife is to align herself to her husband's leadership, being a helper to him and not an independent operator. She is to believe that God has given her husband the role of providing direction and vision for the home. She is to submit to the leadership he provides. This Christmas season is the busiest time of the year for many of us. There's decorations to be hung, gifts to be wrapped, and family gatherings to attend. Like an overstuffed Christmas stocking, there's too much crammed into too little. That's why Back to the Bible Canada is offering you a 30-day devotional booklet entitled Quiet Spaces for Christmas. It's an invitation to be refreshed by the simplicity of God's grace and the arrival of King Jesus. We're also offering you a choice between this devotional or a resource for your kids called Jake and the Christmas Surprise, courtesy of our friends at Laugh Again. It's a funny Christmas story filled with colorful illustrations and Bible verses to reflect on together as a family. It's a great tool for those searching to know Jesus at a young age. Choose one of these resources as our gift by visiting backtothebible.ca. Godly wives believe that God has entrusted their husbands with a call to provide leadership for their family. That is, she believes that simply because he's the man, he has the special calling by virtue of his gender. 
God created men and women not to be interchangeable. Rather, God created them and attached roles that he assigned to their gender. Now, in the secular world, gender is often seen as fluid, but in the Bible, it's seen as the work of a good and gracious creator in which gender also comes with a calling. Husbands are to be the protectors and defenders in the home, as well as those who provide leadership. Christian wives are called upon to understand this role and to make marriage such that it functions according to the precepts of Christ. And yes, our Creator assigns our roles to us. We don't choose our roles. That's what it means to be obedient to God. Whatever my God ordains according to His holy will, that is good and acceptable in our eyes. But of course, the fact that God calls husbands to lead and wives to submit is not to indicate that wives are inferior to their husbands. Wives are not inferior. They're equal to their husbands. That's clear from creation itself. For the wife was taken out of the man, and as such, both man and women share equally in the image of God. And if that's so, why this different role? Well, it's because in the Bible, equality doesn't mean we play the same role or that roles are interchangeable. So consider the Father and the Son. The Father is fully God. The Son is fully God. They are equal in substance and in being. However, the Father planned our redemption, and the Son submitted to the will of the Father, becoming obedient to the point of death on the cross. Jesus himself testified to that in John 5.19. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Submission, which the Son willingly and joyfully offered to the Father, is not a statement of inequality. Same is true in marriage. The husband does not look upon his wife as an inferior, and the wife doesn't look upon her husband as a superior. They understand their fundamental equality, but they also understand that belonging to the household of God, that God in his infinite wisdom assigns them roles to play. So notice the statement in verse 18, wives be submissive to your husbands, and then comes the phrase, as is fitting in the Lord. Not as is fitting according to the norms of society, no, no, as is fitting in the Lord. So let's start with the word fitting. The word carries with it a sense of duty. As the wife learns the calling of Christ on her life, she learns that this calling carries with it a special role that she plays within her marriage, a role only she can play. She will learn that her husband is unable to provide the leadership role that God has assigned to him. And so she will be his helper, believing he has a leadership role, and she will give her energy in helping him to be all that God wants him to be. But how vulnerable is this? Can she be abused? Of course she can. In a sin-cursed culture, every command of God is abused. And so God now gives a second command, this one to the husband, verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. It's really two commands. Let's examine both of them. The first command is, husbands, love your wives. And Paul, as you know, has a longer version of that in Ephesians 5. There we find Paul commanding husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And in order to describe what he means by that, he adds that Christ gave himself up for his church. Obviously, Paul is speaking of Christ offering his life to save his church. 
We have to believe that the kind of love that Paul has in mind is not just a sacrificial love, you know, a love that benefits the other, but it's also a protective love. He, in Ephesians 5, speaks of Christ sanctifying the church and ensuring that the church, in the end, will be presented before the Father without spot or wrinkle. See, if we were to imagine Christ's love for the church, we might say he loved the church so that the church would be saved from the day of wrath and be made acceptable to the Father. So how is this an example of how the husband is to treat his wife? Well, the answer has to be that Christ did what needed to be done to protect and safeguard his church. There's a protective role that the husband has toward his wife. He, by nature of his creation in most cases, is physically stronger than his wife. In that way, he can protect her in the day of harm. He'll defend her. He won't criticize her. She knows he is her defender. But he'll also protect her when they have children and she's expecting and dependent upon him. He'll protect her when the children rise up against her. I I have memories of my earthly father being quite displeased with me when I talked back to mom. He reminded me that was the bride that he loved, and he certainly wasn't going to take that kind of talk against his lover. That got my attention. A husband loves his wife by giving off the same attitude towards others that might seek to harm her. He's a leader in the relationship, but he also makes it clear that she is dearer to him than all other relationships. And that's why the scripture tells us that a man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. His love for her supersedes all other loves. And that leads most naturally to the second of the two commands. He is not to be harsh with her. Yeah, he's called to lead all right, but no, he's forbidden from ever bullying her, abusing her being a man of temper who's able to intimidate. His leadership is gentle, kind, caring, sacrificial. In short, that's the biblical definition of love. See, the idea of being harsh is the idea of being bitter towards her or to have resentment or carrying past injuries and always bringing them up. Marriage, because of the very nature of the thing, has a great deal of reasons for remembering the sins of the other. But he is to lead in forgiving and bringing reconciliation back into the relationship. A third command is now given to children. Verse 20, children obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. To obey is a stronger word than to submit. And the word to obey is reinforced where it adds in everything. God expects children to obey their parents. That's God's pattern. In relation to this command, this mirrors what's said in the fifth of the Ten Commandments. As you know, the Ten Commandments are divided into two tablets of the law. The first four are in relationship to God. The next six are in relationship to our fellow man. So when the commands about our fellow men begin, the first of those commands reads, Honor your father and your mother. And then it adds that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. The implication Israel isn't going to live long in the land if the relationship between parents and children is not properly maintained. And why is that? Because any society that does not establish the rights of parents over their children is a society that will eventually become evil and be destroyed. Let me provide an easy example of that. Children who never learn the meaning of no are children who are lawless. I used to have a dear friend who used to say that in some cases, the first no that a child will ever hear is when the arresting officer slaps the handcuffs on them, leads them to jail. Well, maybe that's true, but perhaps when enough children are raised in a permissive family, 
where children are not to be trained and discipled, that's not being emphasized. In such cases, an entire society can become lawless and eventually will tear each other apart. That is to say, teaching children to be obedient to parents not only trains them to deny themselves for a greater cause, it makes possible a good and decent society. Therefore, it's essential for children to obey their parents. Now the fourth command, verse 21. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So to provoke is to behave in such a way that the children are caused to feel resentment. So when does that happen? Well, it happens when unrealistic demands are placed on them. It happens when discipline is harsh and the result of anger rather than the result of discipline. It happens when children are belittled and when they are made to feel inferior. It happens when children are not forgiven for past mistakes and when their past mistakes are constantly brought up in the future. It happens when children are viewed as a hindrance who happen to get in the way rather than that they're cherished and are told how glad and delighted and honored we are to have them. Fathers are addressed here because they do give leadership in the home. Paul says, make sure they don't become discouraged, but rather encourage them. I began by saying there are those who argue against the nuclear family. They point to abuse and misery in some families. To this, I have a response. The abuse and misery that has come to people from the state is much greater than what has ever happened in the family. Christian people have a cause to celebrate. We have Christ as the Lord of families, and it is there that the very best future can be nurtured and directed under the Lordship of Christ. Thanks so much, John. That's a lot to digest. And I think what comes to my mind is that we don't spend enough time understanding what the Bible actually says about being a a husband, a wife, or a parent. Do you think that's because of the conflict that seems to be between the Bible and the preferences of our society? Sure. I think our society is a very anti-family, at least at this time. I mean, I pray for a time when this actually changes. I think there is not an emphasis on the beauty of family, the importance of family, and the fact that family actually provides stability for the whole culture. I mean, I don't think a great many of us have been trained this. And so I think we need to do it in the church. We also need to teach the kind of roles that men and women play in the marriage relationship and what is intended for children. So all of that's very important, and we do need to emphasize it. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The True Christian, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Keeping God Central summarizes the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada. The teaching of God's Word via radio broadcast, social media, print, and video resources is not just about data. We want the Bible truth to be known, the truth that leads to knowing a growing relationship with Jesus. Our mission, with your help, is to effectively and faithfully share the good news across Canada and beyond our borders. We're so encouraged by the response of listeners. One wrote, your show is a constant that provided an anchor in an otherwise upside down world. Through your show, I've learned so much more about Jesus, the Bible, and our faith. You know, we really can't do this without you. 
So please consider supporting this Bible teaching ministry with a financial gift today. Visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.